Adna, welcome to day 11 of the Future of Faith Conversations. I know that people have been excited um, across Twitter and Facebook and Instagram that I'm having uh, Father Koka on the show today. I think people almost didn't believe that we were going to make it. <laughs> so I'm very happy that you've joined us. I thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. You know, those of us who are on the other side of 60, going close to 70, we are quite vulnerable yes, with this uh, coronavirus. So I'm happy we're still here. Yes, <laughs> I'm happy you are here, sir. We, are, we need you here for a while, a long time to come. We need you here for a long time to come. Thank um, you. Let's start with, with this, sir. Over the past few years, there has, become, there has been, over the past few, maybe four to five, half decade, there has been a renewed sense of urgency in your voice and your message to the nation about the dangers of religious fundamentalism, um, the dangers of um, accepting fundamentalist ethos to running the country. And more than once, you have used the word hegemony to describe the state of affairs, you know, and the warnings to people, especially to the elites across the country. What would you say has led to this sense of urgency? What is driving that sense of urgency now? Well, once again, Judy, thank you very much. Uh, I, I, I think that, um, and I'm happy that you, you've been sensitive enough to locate a particular period uh, in, my, in my career uh, and in my public interventions uh, when my voice seemed to have become I don't know, it's not deliberate, but a bit more strident. Um, and this is not unconnected with the fact that I just see us sliding and sliding and sliding. Now, when this government came to power, I think like, you know, like a lot of other Nigerians, we had a lot of high hopes. Uh, the president, in the course of his campaign, um, I think he had, he had an unfinished business. But also the impression that we got was that that unfinished business was going to continue. So we're going to see an aggressive struggle to end corruption, um, an aggressive uh, struggle to institutionalize discipline in the affairs of the nation. Um, and then we felt that uh, the number of years that the president had spent in the cold uh, would help him have a sense of urgency about how very desperately this nation needed to be fixed. Um, and I raised a few issues at the beginning, but one of my main, main concerns was the fact that the president has, uh, people use an expression about the nature of his following in the North, a fanatical following uh, on the fringes of Northern Nigeria. And that my, deep down inside me, I had a, a feeling of anxiety about the rationality of the expectations of that fringe within the Muslim community, which already was quite combustible. And part of that combustibility was what we had, again, we, had, we, we were seeing with Boko Haram and so on and so forth. And my anxiety was with this, with the coming of this president, with that fringe feel a sense of redemption and that what we really wanted is now here. And I felt that the president had an opportunity to pull back, you know, and the best way to deal with those issues would have been 
to create a template that is, it would have been able to pull together the energies, the excitement of Nigerians uh, who were fed up with the way politics has always been played, and that we're really expecting a very a new dawn. Unfortunately, most of it is now history, uh, and we saw what finally became the manifestation of tendencies that have really made, you know, deepen the cleavages, deepen the frustration, and then created, we now are faced with almost a, a, a Nigeria that nobody in his wildest of dreams would have expected that would be at this point, where people, even those who are in the party, uh, and it's not about the Muslims, you know, the level of frustration is even manifesting and you can feel it, it's on the social media from even those who were fanatical supporters of this government. So, and there is a, a certain kind of feeling that we really don't know where we are. Do you worry? Because, you know, typically you've been, I mean, for the past three decades, you've been a convening force from across these conversations. Do you see a receptiveness to this message now? Has that message gotten a receptive ear this time around? Or is it, in fact, the lack of that receptiveness that makes the urgency of the message stand out this time around? Well, you know, I mean, clearly, as you know, you know, those of us who watch football, we play better than the people who are on the pitch. <laughs> <laughs> I am not under any illusion, you know, that the things I'm saying, I'm expecting that they will be operationalized, you know, but I would also think that, you know, in, in, in a country that is as diverse as we as this, uh, that what, what has always run governments, and I think the important thing, what has always run governments has been the, the, the ability of people in power to aggregate uh, interest groups, to bring together people who can help to offer some really very concrete and practical suggestions. I'm not talking here about political advisors whose business is to make sure that they retain their jobs. Uh, because, you know, in Africa, it's very, very difficult to confront leaders with conversation that is anything other than massaging their egos. But I think the measure of good leadership is for a leader to be able to have the ability and the capacity, first of all, to be sufficiently comfortable on their chair they're comfortable enough to know that there is a distinction between, you know, being disagreeing with you and being disagreeable. So, you know, a lot of people have said to me severally, they say, look, don't you get frustrated from talking? Um, people say, look, now these guys, you are not going to change them overnight. But, you know, I'm a Christian and I'm a person, you know, with deep faith. Uh, not necessarily in what, in what, in our human capacity, but in what God's plans are for our country. And I've been, I have traveled the length and breadth of this country. I come from the middle of, the middle of Nigeria. I said, I'm a northerner, but I'm a Christian. And that gives me a certain level of comfort in southern Nigeria that other people who are probably northerners will not be able to feel in southern Nigeria. I am also, uh, you know, a minority in a way of manner that you mentioned witness to justice. You know, when I was going around this country, what amazed me most was, how the kind of empathy, the kind of what people felt about me. We went to Kano, and the, the, the good number of the Muslims in Kano said, you know, you are a son of the North. We believe you will defend our interests. I go to Enugu, 
And the people, the people in Enugu, some people called me and they, you, you know, we are predominantly Catholic here. You are a Catholic priest. We expect you to stand with us. We went to Port Harcourt. The Ogoni people say to me, you are a minority like us. We know you can hear our cry. So I'm not making any claims, but that I think I feel sufficiently feel the pulse of this country. However, I think what has really not happened in Nigeria is that those in power have been so obsessed with holding power, which is really office, that they've really not been able to deal with the issue of how nations grow by drawing from those with intellectual capital who may not necessarily be office holders. You know, and so for me, I would think, for example, that it would be strange if you have a president sitting in Abuja and the people in the presidency have no contact with some of the universities, from the university in Abuja to Nasarawa State University, where you have a, a lot of intellectuals whose business is to think through these, you know, think through these, uh, you know, processes. So when you think of certain countries, for example, and I will not name names, but there are certain people who have come to the presidency almost with nothing in their heads. But the countries have been able to run literally on autopilot, largely because the system is able to accommodate you know, those mistakes. So again, you know, these are some of the reasons why I feel so frustrated, because I know that this country is not a complicated country to govern. I'm, I'm coming to the speech that I'm using as the fulcrum of this conversation, which is your speech at uh, your, one of your last convocation lectures. But before I come to that, I, I'm thinking of how to ask this in a in a neutral way. But no, let me ask this first. Some of your speeches, there's been a thread of mention about secularism. I've seen you talk about secularism once or twice. Um, I know that when I, was, when I was a young student, when I was young, when I was in secondary school, one of the things I used to, I used to struggle with was is Nigeria a secular and multi-religious nation? And does that language football actually have any consequence on the way that we see the country and the way that we run the country? In your opinion, is that an important question to resolve, whether we are in fact a secular country and whether we are in fact a multi-religious country? You know, I, well, okay, we can quibble with the words. Secularism is not what I agitate for because secularism doesn't have a place for religion. What we really should be talking about is the secularity of the state. And in reality, frankly, and I think this is a point that Islam in northern Nigeria has to deal with. This is that we have a country where no Nigerian president, perhaps his lack of sufficient understanding, because don't forget, it was with Yaradua that we got the first uh, graduate as a president. And these are all good people, but it is that the whole question of how you manage a complex society like Nigeria is, is that you have to have setting metaphors that can hold people together. And I give you something, it's not anecdotal, it was told to me by President Obasanjo, I've mentioned this before. You know, when Nigeria was playing one of those World Cup matches, and as you know, whenever the goals are not coming, we start singing the name of Jesus, you know, all we are saying, Jesus, give us more goals. And they started one of those songs in the villa, you know, and the president was there with some of his aides and his chief of staff and so on. And then they started the song, and somehow a goal was scored. And everybody, of course, burst into, into laughter and applause and clapping. And his chief of staff, you know, General Mohammed, was there clapping. And then Obasanjo turns to him and says, the goal has been scored in the name of Jesus. Why are you clapping? You know, and uh, General Mohammed turned to Obasanjo and says, as long as a goal has been scored, we are all Christians. Um, <laughs> yes. really, it is that... You know, we are running a country where 
Section 10 of our constitution pretends that, you know, that is where we go to in terms of justifying the status of the Nigerian state. But that the concept there is so imprecise that in a country such as ours, it is subject to manipulation. Now, we have most of Northern Nigeria and throughout the various constitutional debates until 1988, when President Babangida decided to insert what he called a, a clause that talked about no-go areas in the constitutional debate. And debating, the, uh, debating Sharia was one of those clauses. Now, before then, the debate about the status of the Nigerian state had always been the most controversial because the Muslims said they want to live under Islamic law. And this is what happened after 1999. Now, about 20 years later, Zamfara and a lot of other states in northern Nigeria that adopted Sharia law have become literally at best a slaughterhouse. And the question to ask those who wanted, who applied Sharia then, will be to say, okay, is this the example of what living under a Sharia state is all about? So the idea behind the secularity of the state is that it allows enough moral room for, for neutrality, and let me use the word ambiguity. You know, it is only in that kind of country that people can feel that they have a sense, they can aspire to whatever they want to be without any encumbrances. So I was going to talk about um, your speech in, the, in March um, at the Chukumeka um, Odinegu Ojuku University Convocation Lecture. And it was themed, what time, is, what, time, what time is it for Nigeria? I think it is one of the most um, remarkable public interventions I've seen in a while in Nigeria. I want to quote from one of the paragraphs where so you said, there is no need for us to continue to hide under a finger by pretending that democracy can coexist with semi-feudal, semi-autocratic, aristocratic, or theocratic claims. Now, this was the most important part. Democracy has its own rhythm and logic, which lies in the principle that all of us are created equal. And the duty of the state is to provide an opportunity for all of us to have a right to the pursuit of happiness. Now, this, I think, is an eloquent defense of democracy as a choosing state of running a society. But there are those that would say that that ideological framework is uniquely Western, is uniquely American, drawn from perhaps European tradition, from the United Kingdom, from France and all of that, and that when it comes to running a country like Nigeria with a different set of cultural and historical priorities, something like what General Abacha was reported to have said about a homegrown democracy, a mishmash of the best from the West, and these elements perhaps of feudalism and theocracy is exactly what we need to curate in a nation like Nigeria. It is, it is impossible to imagine the Nigerian state, which has deep feudal foundations, deep theocratic foundations, and imagine that any successful system of government can disregard those imperatives. What is your response to that? Um, I'm not sure it's a question of disregard, <clears throat> as it is a question of prioritization. <clears throat> and we must ask ourselves the question, um, after, what, about 40, 50 years 
of experimenting, we must ask ourselves the question, has this system really delivered? Because it, it has delivered in other places. There is a case to be made for the fact that, yes, I agree with you, these are Western models, but Europe was feudal. Everywhere in the world was feudal. So it's, but people made a transition, some by blood, some by negotiation, but they made a transition. And very often those transitions were clinical. They were so clinical that they, were, they defined a break with the past. Part of the tragedy of the Nigerian situation is, and I repeat it, we've never had a transition. We've never had a transition because we didn't have a transition from military to civilian rule. We know what happened in 1998 when Abacha suddenly died. We know how, the, how I mean, it was almost everybody knew Obasanjo would be president before, even before the PDP was formed. Okay, so, and so there is nothing here to suggest that we have understood and we even allow a latitude that somebody, the system is designed in a way and manner that strangers can come in from nowhere literally and take the prize by dint of hard work. So the point is that we cannot, when we talk about, about even, even feudalism in the sense and manner that we talk of, we are still dealing with the whole question of traditional societies and in fairness to us, we have not really covered a long, a, long, a long part of the road on this journey. We are a, a work in progress. But the truth of the matter is that we, 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 we have not, we have reduced democracy purely and simply to just doing the very basic things of campaigning, uh, winning elections by manufactured consent and all kinds of what that means. But notwithstanding that, you can see that even Nigerians themselves are still asking the very basic question. Is it democracy we are going to chop? That is because democracy has not been able to resolve some of the contradictions. It was not meant to solve every problem. But like Churchill said, it is the worst form of government except for others. So we've experimented with a, with a range of other, other options. And it is clear to everybody that in a multi-dimensional, multicultural society such as ours, with all kinds of expectations, we need to have something that can hold our hopes our dreams, our ambitions, our fears together. I want to move into more theological ground now. But what you said, I've seen this criticism, I've seen, I've, I've read at least one article, I think, in Daily Trust, a few years, no, during the election last year, where someone said, where was this uh, criticism of our religious folk life? when a Christian who was president of the country for five years, when Goodluck Jonathan, who was a minority Southerner and a Christian, was president. This, your, your voice about these fault lines weren't as prominent then, and that this might betray an animosity towards this particular government. And of course you explained that about you being in the room when there was a reconciliation between Vice President Atiku Abubakar and Vice Pre and President Olusegun Obasanjo, who you have a warm, if complicated, relationship with, and so this was declared as prima facie evidence that this is a political desire for Buhari not to be the president of Nigeria, and that everything must be seen in the light of that your political stance. What do you say to that? Well, which is okay, but I think that uh, the good thing about that was that most of all those things were written around August uh, and onwards. This was before 
things came to where they are. And I have met a lot of people in the aeroplane, at the airport, on the streets who have stopped me and apologized to me. There are many fanatical supporters of this government who have written articles and have said very publicly, expressed their regret. Um, for me, it's nothing personal. I, I, I had, had known Buhari much longer than I had known Jonathan. Okay, <laughs> and it was, for me, never, ever, I mean, it has never, ever been anything personal. But I can understand. I've been on this, on this road long enough to know. I understand. You know, I understand the table manners, you know, in Abuja, which is that when you are eating, you don't talk. I understand those, those things. I know some of my friends who held me up as a hero during, uh, during the, you know, Nadeko years and yes. talked about the things I was, how, how I was risking my life. But now, food is ready. And a good number of them are in power. They cannot understand why I'm still pushing the table and saying, listen, people, Nigerians are still hungry. They don't understand that. And for them, they are on the gravy train and everything else that tries to change the direction of this train is that you don't like the government. Well, I don't know whether I should say this. Buhari, General President Buhari knows. I respect him as my president, and I think he knows that himself. When I sought audience with him, and I think I can say this publicly, because when, they, when the, choir, the choir boys started making noise, noise about me, not liking the government, I asked to see the president. And it was unprecedented that I will ask to see the president on a Tuesday and actually say that, please, I, would, I have a flight to catch at 11 o'clock. And that if I'm going to be able to see him, it has to be before 11. I mean, you don't make those kind of requests if you want to see the president. But I don't know what got into me. I made the request. The president actually, they, they, I mean, I was shocked when they called me to say the president had agreed to see me the next day. I went. And to my greatest shock, the president actually broke from a meeting and came to see me. And we sat down and we talked. He knows I have the greatest respect for him as a person. Truth be told, I am not happy. I am not happy. And I think that we can reset this template because even the president himself knows this is not where we are supposed to have been on this road. Okay? Anybody who is living with the illusion that everything is okay in Nigeria knows that everything is not okay. And it's not about blaming the president. Happily, the box stops at his table, for good or for bad. My position has always been we need to figure out how to manage our diversity. In fact, you spoke about my convocation lectures. For me, it has come to me as a shock because I don't know whether anybody has given as many convocation lectures as I have given. And this is irrespective of, the, I mean, not counting so many invitations that I have not been able to accept. But one day I was looking at my lectures and I suddenly discovered that I have spent about quite half of my time talking about national cohesion. It was a theme that I literally become obsessed with almost unconsciously because I believe that if, a, if we don't have a united country, we cannot make progress. If we don't have a country where people have a sense of belonging, we will not have a country. And like they say, you don't throw a stone in the market until you know that your mother has gone to the market that morning. But where we are now, citizen people feel that if you are a Christian, if you are a minority, and I'm not making this up. You can run the numbers. Run the numbers and make the calculations and see what kind of conclusion you, you know, you'll arrive at. It is that clearly where we are now, 
is not where we were supposed to have been. And those who say, well, that with Jonathan, I wasn't accident. Guess what? And you will not believe this. Throughout the period of Jonathan's administration, they have a big chapel in the villa. I was occasionally invited during Obasanjo's time. Most of the times, I never really went. But through Jonathan's time, I was never invited because actually what I had later on from my friends was that I was Buhari's friend, which is good for me. It's good for me that Buhari's people think that I'm Jonathan's friend. Jonathan's people think that I'm Buhari's friend. When Buhari goes, his friends will probably think that, oh, I'm a friend. They can, you know, it's okay by me because the more confused my, my accusers are, the better it is for me because it also suggests very clearly that I think I'm pretty clear about where I'm going. Let's move away from that a bit, sir. You know, even though, you know, you're the, I, I talked about the Emosian tradition and people were not paying attention. I'm talking about the prophet Amos in the Bible. I know, I mean, the, the later, more urgent prophets, as I call them, you know, and Habakkuk, Jeremiah, Isaiah, etc. There's a rich Christian tradition of intervention in governance, um, especially in the Old Testament. There's a rich tradition, at least in modern times, of priests and especially in the Catholic Church intervening. I mean, the present Pope is known locally in his country over the past 30 to 40 years, globally, you know, his critique of income inequality, his critique of a mature secularism, his critique of stridency when it comes, one of my favorite books of his is The Name of God is Mercy. You know, so he has a rich critique tradition. Priest in, in America at Bishop Nolan, these are people who are known for, you know, intervening in public life. Um, here in, in, in the continent, even though he's not of the Catholic tradition, um, at Bishop Desmond Tutu, is known for his robust interventions in public life. Still, there can often be a discomfort by general people who want their priest to be unsolid, so to speak, by present political concerns. Where do you, what, what's your response to that? Well, I think it is very, I mean, now that you ask the question, frankly, it's very difficult because it's not even something that I've thought about. Uh, but let me also tell you that strange as it may sound to you, most of my inspiration actually has come from northern Nigeria. And I hear I must thank some of my friends in the new Nigeria who opened up the pages for me to start writing a column that actually gave me a, 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 a massive audience that I was not even aware of. My sense of urgency arises from the fact that, you know, I've been extremely lucky. Unlike most of my other priests, fellow priests, some who, you know, a good number of who are bishops, a lot of my colleagues studied in Rome. I went through secular universities in the United Kingdom, uh, in, in the US. And what, it, what this meant for me was that I mixed with the wrong crowd. Let me put it that way. <laughs> I have all kinds of funny friends, you know, with all kinds of incredibly radical views. So I got, I got very comfortable in those kind of environments. A lot of this is what has made very many things slightly easier for me. So I don't fit and I have never wished to. And the current Pope says it over and over. None of us is supposed to fit into this compartmentalization of staying outside, staying in the sacristy. If there is trouble, you simply sprinkle holy water on the trouble. No, I live in this country. I live in Nigeria. And like I've often said, the people who, whom I'm pastoring and ministering to are paying a price for keeping me healthy and for keeping me you know, alive. 
Let me put it that way. Therefore, I have an obligation to them. I want to come back. You know, you mentioned about you know younger people who I, I mean there are some private conversations I cannot bring into this, but you know I want to talk to you about a generation generations that keep making the same fundamental mistake in how they see interventions in nation building. But before that, I want to leave Nigeria for a bit. I want to talk about the Catholic Church, and I don't know if you're at liberty to answer a question like this, but I, it, it, it's my duty to try. Um, there seems to be an existential debate in the Catholic Church, um, especially since the, the, the papacy of this present Pope Francis, who, you know, who I adore personally, and where people, people, if you read the New York Times, there's, const, there's an entire section dedicated to conversations about those who feel the papacy is going off the rails in a direction of liberalism and relaxing of doctrine. You know, there have been conversations about American, I mean, there have been people who have been moved, some people say, to Siberia because of their persistent criticisms of, of, of the Pope. There have been a series of archbishops or cardinals who have written open letters to question the direction of the church. And it all boils down to a, a, a Benedict faction and a Francis faction. Where we, <laughs> we believe Pope Francis is trying to move us to concede to the culture where Pope Benedict was defending doctrine. Where do you stand on this debate? Well, you know, I mean, first of all, this is the Catholic Church, you know. I mean, uh, up till 1986, for example, there was no church called uh, Christ Ambassador by Chris Oyaki Lomi because it was founded in 1987. You know, up till uh, 1980, there was no Living Faith. Living Faith was founded in 1981. You know, we go through all this. There was no Lutheran church before 15... Uh, 15, in 1516, there was no Lutheran church. Lutheran church only came about in 1517. Now, what am I saying? This is the Catholic church for crying out loud. All right? You are holding two, over 2,000 years of history. And there is nothing. Things have gotten much better now. There is nothing that this church has not seen. No scandal conceivable that the church has not lived with. We are actually in much sinner times now, let me put it that way. So what you're seeing, there are also, of course, contrived narratives that people want to import into the Catholic Church. Mm. There can be no contradiction. Of course, this is the first time in our history that it's never been the case that one pope, you know, a pope, a pope emeritus, you know, and, and a pope, you know, that is uh, uh, on the throne. But the pope, the pope will not be pope if his fundamental principle is to deviate from the teachings of the church because he's a custodian of the keys of St. Peter. You may hear him make a statement, but always don't forget, most of, by the time the Pope speaks on the essential issues of doctrine, it has probably taken three, four or five years of debate, intense debate across the entire, the various structures of the universal Catholic church. So, but as for the New York Times, you know, I mean, that's nowhere the church takes its inspiration. You know, so we are like supporters of many football clubs. They've got different ideas about the players, they've got different objectives and so on and so forth. But the important thing is how the team plays and wins. We, we are actually out of time, but I want to extend this a bit. You know, we've had 
this schism in the Anglican Church, for instance, where essentially the um, the West has said, look, you Buswala is too much. You know, you go your way, let's go our way. Because, you know, doctrinally, there is no convergence anymore, so to speak. That's that's a colloquial interpretation of this schism with the with the with the Anglican uh, Church in the continent and in the especially in the West. I want to get your opinion on what some people call the rampaging um, triumph of liberalism and how it is consuming religion and how, for instance, Pew Research Pew Research survey of the past thirty years has we've reached the point at which no religion is the fastest growing religion in America. There's the challenge of what to do with, with auditoriums in, in the West. I mean, in Sweden, Denmark, all of those countries, some people have already given up. And people say until the church takes a hardline stand on issues like abortion, on issues like you know, homosexuality, on issues like um, um, divorce, that the church's way of retaining its influence is to retain its purity. I remember that when the same-sex bill was passed, you had a rather nuanced view. I'm not, if I'm wrong, please, please correct me, where you said, look, doctrinally, there is no debate about where the church stands on this issue. And then somebody asked a, a dangerous question and said, but would you report a person to the authorities, you know, in, 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 in accordance with the law, so to speak, and you and you took you took a stand that was more of mercy and compassion rather than stringency and you know legalism, so to speak. But there will be people who say that stance of compassion in and of itself is a concession to liberalism, and that kind of concession puts the church's purity and influence at risk. What do you say to that? I've got very little to say. But the only good thing is, I'm happy you're answering, you're mentioning the Anglican Church, because hey, I just called my friend, uh, Archbishop Oko, to congratulate him on stepping down uh, as the primate of the Anglican Church uh, mm -hmm. later this afternoon, and called uh, Bishop Henry, Archbishop Henry, the new Anglican Archbishop, whom I've never met, but I just called to extend my good wishes to him. So all I can say is we wish, you know, I, I wish every, as long for me, as long as you are calling the name of Christ, Frankly, I don't want to say I couldn't be bothered. Religion is not something for us to fight about. For me as a Christian, I would say as long as you are calling the name of Christ, you are answerable to Christ, not to me. It's not my name mm -hmm. that I call it. And I mm -hmm. think that, you know, so the whole question of liberalism and conservatism, in my view, is a sociological construct. And you can be, it depends on how you want to see religion. If you want to see religion as theology, you want to see religion as sociology, you want to see religion, it depends on what, you know, what analytical tools, you know, that we are using. But I don't think that all of, any of us can say that we are liberal and that, because each and every one of us, if you bring in those two tendencies, it is that, yes, we may be liberal about certain things, but we are conservative about other things. So I think we can spend a lot of our time and energy debating about denomination, liberalism, conservatism, and so on and so forth. In the final analysis, where do you stand when our common humanity is assaulted? For me, those are the critical questions. Back to Nigeria, sir. Two things. Uh, you wrote a very moving piece um, a few weeks ago about a young father who was murdered for essentially 
Mongoda by terrorists, you know, in the north of Nigeria. When I was reading it, I realized that sometimes we, I intellectualize these very personal stories of death and uh, religious intolerance, for want of a better word. And it just reminded me that these are very personal stories, very heartbreaking, very heart-wrenching events and happenings. How do you cope with this velocity of stories keep coming in? And because of your position, you have to comfort, you have to encourage, you have to verbalize, you have to engage the people who are affected by these deaths. And you have to speak about them. How do you process these very emotional, very painful, very heartbreaking moments? And secondly, how do we, how do we move away from this intolerance that is literally stabbing at the heart of this nation? Well, I mean, that's, that's, that's a subject for a book. But yes. very shortly, let me tell you, and you, you understand my, my, my frustration. A lot of people made a lot of comments about my sermon and the, the burial of the young man. One, he was my seminarian. Um, but even more important, and it's not because he was my seminarian, but it just tells you that the injury was quite close. But I, you, you have to ask the question, because we've never been in this kind of situation before. Where human beings are being prized in the bush, like animals, somebody comes, abducts your wife, abducts your, your, your son, your friend, your brother, and so on, and begins to negotiate. And at the end of the day, you are going through this pain. I see governors, public officials, they are attending wedding ceremonies, they are attending birthday parties, they are flying to Dubai to do all kinds of things. This country is hurting. Governors, the president himself, it doesn't take so much for empathy. Mm. It does not take so much. Mm. In, when 9-11 when happened, what changed the conversation of 9-11 was President Bush flying to the ground zero and getting on that uh, vehicle and taking this mock phone and appealing to people. Now, the sad thing about this, this whole thing is that people are being killed left, right, and center. All right? And our politicians are too busy with other things. And this, there's nothing like a feeling of loneliness and just a feeling that you, have, you don't have anybody. Because these same politicians are going to come back to the same villages, walk through these corpses, walk through the graves in search of votes. And then you tell me there are things we, we cannot do, but there are certain things that are just totally unacceptable. Because my argument is that it is this lack of a caring heart. You may not bring back the dead, but it does not take anything from a president to fly into a community just to say, I am sorry that this has happened to you. Those kind of things will compensate emotionally what nothing else can. You will not bring back the dead, but people have a feeling that you are with them. Because in the final analysis, these guys who are committing these crimes know that Nothing will ever happen and nobody's going to do anything. But while I'm appealing and consoling Nigerians, those who govern Nigeria have a moral obligation to reduce the distance that we have to cover. Mm, fantastic. That's a great way to end. But I just have one last question. One last question. In your Oduku University lecture, you, you kept hammering on education. Education. Sometimes you even refer to the educated elite of the South. Now, this question now emerges. If the South, if education really is going to save us as a nation, as a society, where is the evidence of that 
if the largely educated South is unable to sustainably hold on to power, which is not really the goal, it's just as an example, and if this education that the South has had has over the past few years has not managed to enable it change substantially, you know, or increase its influence over the state of the nation. What's the evidence of this faith that education can be part of the saving of the soul of this nation? I don't know. You can you you probably would probably need to tell me where illiterate people have built a country. All right. Mm -hmm. Um I think you must actually understand that the inability of the educated people to have an impact in Nigeria is because ill-informed, ill-trained politicians have turned politics and turned the country into a zoo. Count on your finger how many Nigerian politicians have entered Nigerian politics with evidence of how much they have accomplished and how much they have achieved. Because, you know, I mean, our politics is an exercise in hostage taking. All right. It's not mm -hmm. as if you have a president who com or presidential candidate who convinces Nigerians by force of argument. Mm -hmm. It is that before the elections, the big boys have put their money together. They've compromised mm -hmm. the apparatus of power. They've put, they put their, their, their systems in place. And whether you like it or you don't like it, they have a contrived outcome. And all you have to do is they are going to manufacture consent one way or the other anyway. So mm. the truth of the matter is that we do not have a system that has allowed, that has privileged intellect and intellectualism. Mm. Now, there is a small country in Latin America called Costa Rica. I once met their president. And he said, in Costa Rica, Costa Rica has no army. They don't have a military force. They don't have a military force because 90% of investment is in education. If you want to be a senator, you want to be a president, one of the best selling points to be a president or a senator, a member of Congress, is to have the record of your grandfather having been a teacher, your, both your parents having been teachers, or anything of the sort. That is what they have privileged. Here in Nigeria, we have privileged money, raw money, whether mm. taken from bandits, whether process of criminality, whether process of drug. In Nigerian politics, money is money. Mm. And that is why Mr. Evans, who is standing trial today for kidnapping, said that he had already raised I 50 million or so from kidnapping because he was preparing to go and become governor of Anab. And if, of course, yeah, if he had become governor, he'll be going with Siren. Everybody will be bowing at him. So please, let's not make the mistake. Let's not make the mistake of questioning intellectualism because we are asking those questions about intellectualism precisely because the uneducated have captured politics and reduced intellectualism to where it is. And that is why I ended my, my lecture by saying, Unless the educated elite, Muslims, Christians, Southerners, Easterners decide that going to school, having a certificate is more important than being a, a Muslim or a Christian. Because where we are, and we will remain on this road for a very long time, until a certificate becomes a substitute for ethnic identity or religious identity. Hmm. All right? Because you know yourself, you've been in America. You cannot pretend that you want to be president of America and you've got, not gone to any of the Ivy League universities. Nobody wants to be president of America just based on their income. Well, Donald Trump, but Donald Trump is more or less, you know, I mean, he just come from nowhere. But you know, and it must be the case, for example, if you are in Lagos, if you are in Ibadan, you want to be governor. 
If you didn't go to University of Ibadan, you didn't go to any of these places, there must be something wrong. Okay? In Britain, you had to have gone to Oxford. I'm not saying only people who go to Oxford, all these places must govern. No. But we must place premium on education. Because that is the only thing that can get us out of the wood. So we are finding a lot of extraordinarily good people struggling to do well. But I'm sorry, their good is not good enough. Or their best is not even good enough. So whether we like it or not, this country will not go anywhere until we privilege intellectualism, until we privilege the capacity of the intellectuals to analyze and make intellectuals a privileged class. For me, there are no two ways about it. And Plato said it a long time ago. Right. Yes, it is. Thank you so much, sir. This has been an incredible conversation. This has been the longest conversation I've done since I started this session. And I could go on and on, but I have to respect your time. Thank you so much for joining me, sir. And I look forward to more conversations. Thank you, Chide. And let me, let me honestly and sincerely thank you very much. You've come a very long way. You've made far more progress than when I saw you less than 10 years ago. God bless you and keep up the wonderful work.